0: Today's reading is taken from the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at uh, verse 28 and then going into chapter 3 to verse 3, and you can find that in your few Bibles page 1226 or on your sheet. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure.
1: I'd love you to, if you have that open in your Bible in front of you, that would be brilliant. Um, I'd love you to keep it open, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we've already prayed, that you would lead us through this world's tempestuous seas. We pray for that work spiritually, for your leading through your word. Uh, Whatever the tempests we face at the moment, we pray that these great truths would take root in our lives and that uh, pardoned and provided and guided by you, we would uh, know great joy as we follow Christ and serve him today. In his name, amen. I don't know whether you are in the habit of... uh, Reading special books for for Lent for this time of year. There's one that's been recommended that I think a number of people are enjoying. If you're wanting an old classic to go back to during Lent, I was reminded by our Bible passage this week of one of the best Jim Packer's book, Knowing God. I remembered that it had a chapter on the fatherhood of God. And the chapter begins like this What is a Christian? Then he carries on. The question could be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is. I wonder how you might continue that. His answer is this one who has God for their father. So ask yourself the question would the idea of being a child of God have featured in your answer to that question, what is a Christian? Then listen to how Jim Packer continued. If you want to know and judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child, of having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they don't understand Christianity very well at all is quite stark as a way of putting it, we might want to add that even if our earthly father was woefully inadequate, lacking wisdom or affection or both, or he was absent or just never there for us, it is still possible to understand that God, by contrast, is a perfect father and to enjoy wonderful assurance as a result. Now, if you've followed the series so far, you'll know that having assurance of a real relationship with God was a big deal for the people reading John's letter. New teachers had, it seems, arisen, and they were drawing Christians off after themselves, implying that they had something better and a closer relationship with God, maybe. And John has to work jolly hard to show the church in Ephesus that they are already hugely privileged Hence the emphasis today. If you have Jesus Christ, you know God as your heavenly father. But their confidence was under attack. And that's why the first verse of our reading, uh, verse 28, it says what it does. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So I wanted to tease out three aspects of our confidence from the Bible passage that we have before us to think about today. Um, First off, we have a new father, uh, a new father. And I want to come back to verse 29 in a moment, but let me move on to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, And that's what we are. I like the way he has that little extra sentence there. As if he thinks it's so amazing that we should be called children of God, that everybody's going to be needing to pinch themselves to see if it's a dream. Me, a child of God. Did I hear you right, John? Yes, you did, says John. That is what we are. In fact, in verse 2, he says it again. Now we are children of God. It is a settled status. This is us now, if we're Christians. We may still sin, we certainly do. And when that happens, the friendship between us and God is affected. But the relationship is secure. He's our father, we belong. Now we are children of God. If you were to get another apostle alongside John Paul, he might put it slightly different. In one of his letters, he wrote to the Galatians, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus because Christians are clothed with Christ. In other words, if I have thanked Jesus for dying for my sin, for taking the penalty from me when he died on the cross, then I am dressed in Christ's righteousness. I'm clothed with Christ. And amazingly, the same sort of father-son relationship, which in eternity existed and exists between God the Father and God the Son, The same sort of relationship is opened up to me. We're going to remember at communion a little later on, the wonderful exchange that took place when Jesus died on the cross. God the Son took my place, enabling me to be treated as God's Son. So amazingly, God can speak to me or speak about me in the same sort of language in which he addressed Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, in whom I delight, an adopted child of God with the rights and privileges and prospects of the genuine son. And that sort of thing happened, of course, in the ancient world. Uh, A dignitary might choose to adopt, and from that point onwards, the slave, as it were, becomes a son. So if it was me, Scotus Groticus, becomes Scottish Maximus. I belong to the Maximus family now. I can go to the family box in the Colosseum for the games. I can walk through streets with my head held high and people are saying, morning, Mr. Maximus. It's a complete change of status that happens. Now, that might happen by necessity in the ancient world. There were people where there was a rich benefactor who had no male heir or something like that, so they would adopt for that reason, out of necessity rather. But in God's case, there was no necessity. He had a son through all eternity, yet still out of his own free love, he took action to incorporate other people into that relationship of sonship. There's a little boy that was being teased at school because he was adopted, and he put up with the jibes of his classmates patiently for a while, but then he blurted out in self-defense, you can say what you like, all I know is that my parents chose me, yours couldn't help having you, which is sort of right, isn't it? Thinking about it that way, adoption isn't a disgrace, it's a privilege. And adopted children can know with confidence that they're not an unfortunate intrusion on their parents' lives. Their father and mother had a free choice and elected to call them their precious adopted child. And if that's true of those adopted by human parents, how much more true it is of Christians who have been called children of God? How amazing that we should be called children of God. If you're a Christian, God is not your father simply by the laws of nature. He didn't have to choose you in that sense, but He did. Amazing grace. That's love, not just as a divine handout. We're hearing a bit about government handouts at the moment, rather reluctantly given at times. The government handout helps a bit, and then it stops, unless enough people jump up and down and bend their ear and twist the government's arm. It runs dry. Well, God's love, it says here, is lavished on us, plentifully, bountifully. A new father. On to a second point, and this one is not... Explicit here, but notice secondly by implication a new family. When I come to Christ, I don't just have a new relationship with heaven, I join a family of others who are like me, children of God, and we are family. The language John uses to make this point is the language of regeneration or the new birth. So let's look at the verse I skipped from the end of chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The implication of this language of the new birth, I think, is very straightforward. I'm not in God's family simply by being born. But if I am born again, born of him is the phrase there, then certainly I'm in God's family. It's not a family to which automatically everybody is a member. God gives this new life to each and every child of his. And whilst joining that family at the start may be a secret of other people, it'll never stay secret. The family likeness will show itself. Look at 29 again. If you know that he, God, is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. His character becomes theirs. In human families, we expect to see different features passing down the generations. When I was growing up, my sister's way of abusing me and my mother was to point out that I had the same prominent and distinguished teeth as her. And my mother's fight back was to mention that my sister had the same legs as my father's mother. And the the description of them was that they were like inverted milk bottles. I never really understood what that was all about. But you can tell from that that we weren't always very nice to each other in the Scott family. But, you know, DNA codes mean that genetic material gets passed on, doesn't it? Now, of course, that doesn't happen naturally in adoption in our earthly families. But in God's family, there are features that get passed on. Good qualities. His righteous character. Adoption by God is not just a legal entry on a heavenly computer file. Those whom God adopts, he regenerates. And in so doing, he passes on his moral genes so that his character shows in their lives. We have the family likeness because we're together part of a new family. By contrast, Did you notice how in chapter 3, verse 1, he just slips in a mention of those who don't know God as Father and aren't part of his family? So have a look at the verse. Do you see where in chapter 3, verse 1, that contrasting point is being made? It's just the final sentence of verse 1 I'm referring to. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So, another label, the world. And the New system has this very black and white, binary way of speaking of the whole human race. It doesn't divide us all into lots of different grades, like an exam board. There is fundamentally only one great division, And you get this in other places in the Bible. You get it repeatedly in Jesus' parables. Sheep and goats. The broad way, the narrow way. Wise virgins, foolish virgins. You get the same sort of thing in Paul's writing as well. We all start in Adam. Then some by grace are in Christ, the second Adam. Here in 1 John 3, it's the world who doesn't know God and therefore they don't recognize us and God's family who are righteous because he is righteous. And that's not simply an external change, a few new habits, a few new friends, but a deep internal one, a supernatural new birth. In scientific terms, it's not a physical change like wars are changing into steam where it looks different but it's basically the same substance and the process can easily be reversed. No, it's a chemical change, or like a chemical change, where something new is created and life will never be the same again because we are family. For all sorts of reasons, we often tend to downplay the significance of being reborn into the family of God. Lyndon Johnson Uh, former president of the United States, made two statements in his inaugural speech. First statement, he said this, God made all men, not some men. And that first statement's true. God made all men, not some men. But then he continued with a statement that is not true. He continued like this, Therefore, all men are children of God, Not some men. And that statement is not true. You get his logic. God made all men, not some men. Therefore all men are children of God, not some men. It's that second sentence I'm disputing. It's not true. Not if John's way of drawing the lines between some who are in the family and others who aren't is accurate. We actually help no one by pretending that we are all one big happy family. But over the next few weeks in 1 John, we're going to see just how important healthy family relationships are between Christians. So a new father, a new family, and one final thing to cover now, a new future. I'm going to let verses 2 to 3 largely speak for themselves. But let me read them again. Verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. I had drilled into me as a young Christian, always to look out for the occasions where the New Testament highlights a difference between how things are now and how they will be. The now and the not yet verses. But I'm not sure I'd note it down this Bible reference. 1 John 3 verse 2. Now we're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. This is another of the now and not yet verses, isn't it? Our status now is absolutely settled. We are now children of God if we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. If we've received forgiveness from him who died for our sins. We are now children of God. But the wonder of what we will be in the future is not yet clear to us. The transformation will be complete one day. How complete? Well, this complete. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, a resurrection body. Won't that be great? As the titanium that just about holds us together gets traded in for his gloriously transformed post-Easter physical body. A physical transformation. A morally transformed character. Won't that be great? Free from those habits of sin which we spent years perfecting and couldn't really shake off. They'll be gone forever. Not just forgiven, but wonderfully disappeared. That is your destiny, if God is your Father, and Christians are your family. A new future. Well, I must stop. Mustn't I? Let's get to the so what bit. Okay. So what then? I think the only explicit command in the passage was the one in verse, the verse we started with, chapter two, verse twenty-eight. And now, dear children, here's the verb, uh, the command: continue in Him. So that when he appears we will be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let me just highlight a couple of ways for you to continue in him. I think the fit for us with Lent is the idea of daily disciplines. If there's something we can do daily, it will help us persevere and continue in Christ, won't it? And I've got two little bullet points by by way of application. What we say each day to ourselves and what we say each day to God. Let me just unpack them very quickly. What we say each day to ourselves, well, uh, in the pews, I think there are little blue bookmarks that you can take away with you. Um, This is from the end of the chapter. And I think we had that lovely Australian Tom Habib On Easter Day last year, he pointed out this quotation to us. Let me read it out to you. This is what what we might say each day to ourselves or something like it. I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother, sister. Every Christian... Sorry, my saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother, sister, too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. So, what we say each day to ourselves. Then another little thing, let's make this part of our praying, what we say each day to God. I don't know if you've got some pictures on, on the service at this point, have you? got a picture of my father-in-law and his, his his wife? I didn't check whether this was going to come up. No luck? Brilliant. Okay, go back one. You'll see my father-in-law and his wife on the, on the beach. <laughs> and then we'll have that one. There they are. This is, we, we gave this this to the um, the 930 service. Um, John and Kathy, known, known to us as Money and Bean Park. Um, this is a prayer that... Uh, encourages people to pray. Um, here we go. Hello, Lord, this is your day. I am your child. Show me the way. And I only share it, with I know it's sort of with a child, wearing a Ukrainian T-shirt. Um, uh, I know it's sort of child language, but actually that might mean that some of us can manage to remember a little four-line prayer like that and pray that way. Often there'll be things in any normal day that are great, ask well, her to share them with our Father in Heaven, or that are a struggle. Make sure you pray about those things. Hello Lord, this is your day, I am your child, show me the way. I wonder if you can remember that and turn the language of adoption into not just language that we know from the Bibles, but that we can pray as part of our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and knowing the joy that every day we're one step closer to the wonderful future he has for us. Let's pray, shall we? We ask Heavenly Father that the wonder of that relationship with you and indeed with your children and the glorious hope of which we can be confident would find more and more um, a part of our uh, life, our speech, our praying, our hope, our confidence. Will you make yourself more fully known than ever before this Lent To us, so that we really can continue in Christ day by day. We pray for his sake.
0: Amen.